Good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community Church. Take, a, take your Bibles. Turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. We're going to finish up the fourth chapter today and sort of open up a new sort of section and series. But let's listen to God's word this morning for us. Stand with me to your feet. James chapter 4, verses 13, we are looking at our tendency not only to be wealthy, but to be independent-minded. And, uh, and so let's see what God's Word has to say to us this morning. And again, James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such a, a clear and, Lord, foundational passage of how we should see life and how we should live life and what guides our decisions in the small, everyday things. And so, Lord, give us wisdom and give us this tension that we want to see in the passage today. Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers that I've spoken with this week that are standing up as I stand up to preach your word. Pastor Robert in Bessemer City and Chris in Dallas. Lord, that they would be faithful to the text that I have opened before them to now. Moving with the Holy Spirit in their people and in us, for we are one body. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking about how to have a healthy community, and so we're moving from that, and we're starting a new section as we finish out James. And this will be sort of the theme throughout the rest of our book in James, is how do we have a healthy or a right Christian view of life? We, the fancy word for that is a Christian worldview. We're going to be looking at different things, but remember with me that James and John, for that matter, sees the world not as creation, not as a person, but a fallen demonic system that stands against God, his, God's will, and his people. So here's the question. If we're supposed to reject that world system, that way of making decisions, that way of living life, then what are we supposed to pick up? In other words, if I, if I just lay something down, I am automatically going to pick something up. And if I don't pick up something intentionally, we're going to pick it up by the culture, by what we see and what we hear. And so James wants us to think like a Christian, to make decisions like a Christian, down to the little nitty-gritty details of life. And so the theme, and you're going to see this as we finish out, James, wealth is all through it. Because there's nothing that tells me or that tells yourself what you believe, like how you see money and wealth and things and possessions and how you use them. 
We are part, whether you like it or not, and I'm sure most of the time you love it, part of the wealthiest nation on the wor- in the world. Which means that we are inclined to adopt a worldly worldview because our world pushes us in this direction. And so I want to help us understand this story and why this little story he gives us of this guy who goes on a business trip. So put that quote up there from this atheist, William Provine. I want you to see... Understand that this is a worldview that when you pay $100,000 to send your children to college, this is the worldview that they intend to give them. And if you don't understand it, you got your head stuck in the sand. And listen, this is not the most dangerous worldview out there. The postmodern worldview is more dangerous than this one. But this one's about enough. But just let, let's listen to it. This is his words. I took this off of an atheist website that they put their most famous quotes from people on. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And I must say that these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods. There are no purposeful forces of any kind. No life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be completely dead. That's just all. That's going to be the end of me. There is no no ultimate foundation for ethics. No ultimate meaning in life. And no free will for humans either. This is the worldview of those, as we have said, that wear the robes in our nation. So leave that quote up there on the screen. And I want you to just think about this. Because if you look at your Bibles now at verse 13, he describes a man who goes on a business trip. This man is in business. I don't know, maybe he had a merchant ship. But he goes on a business trip. What's the purpose of the business trip? Well, just look at it. It's to make money. Right? That's why he's going to go. Here's here's the point. Here's the question. Now, look at that quote up there. This is the way that guy thinks. If that guy is the businessman, this one, if William there is the businessman, what difference does this worldview make in why he goes on the trip, what he does when he's on his trip? And how he spends his money when he gets back from the trip. Do you see? What you believe, how you see the world, and how you view life is going to affect everything that you do. James's point to the church is this. You can believe in the existence of God and practically live like an atheist in the way we make decisions in every day. It is how we make decisions about where we go and who we love and how we date and where we date and who we hang around and how, how we do all of these things to the details of going to the grocery store that determines what we believe. We can live in such a way that denies His sovereignty, His lordship, and His control. And here's the truth. We live in a fallen world and it's hard to be a Christian in this world. So here's the main idea. Faith perseveres by putting off prideful independence while putting on humble dependence as we live lives in biblical conviction. And so let's look at the first point. We've got to put off prideful independence. Let's just see it again, verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So what he's wanting us to see is this arrogant attitude, that this arrogant attitude is part of the fallenness of our own hearts. 
But even though we are saved, we still have this tendency towards this self-sufficient attitude. Now, in that day, you just got to understand, trade was the way they made money. Commerce was the way it happened, as much like it is today, but the difference is trade. And trading involves travel. Like I said, if you had a merchant, trip, merchant ship, you couldn't send it on UPS, or they didn't have common carrier. You put it on a, a ship with some sails, and you had to get it there. And so this guy maybe was a merchant. Jewish people were heavily involved in this. Not all of them were suffering. Some of them had prospered in this scattering and were involved in the in in their industries of their day. Noticed in verse 13, these businessmen were self-confident and they were strategic. They had a plan and they were working the, the plan. What's wrong with that? Are we not supposed to plan, preacher? The problem was their attitude. We decide we are going. We decide when we will go. We decide how long we will stay. We decide how much profit we will make and how we're going to spend that profit when we get back. We're in charge. They were living lives as if they knew their futures and as if they were in control of their futures. They were living and deceived. James is not criticizing them for planning. He's not criticizing them for making a profit. Why would anybody have a business if they didn't want to make a profit? That's not his point. Matter of fact, turn with me to Ephesians 4.28. The Bible teaches against laziness. The Bible teaches against greed. Both. And it tells us to work hard. To work honestly. It assumes, listen, it assumes if you're in business you're going to make a profit. Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief... No longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That something is profit. You with me? After you buy a product, you turn around and produce something and sell the product. What's left after you pay your expenses is profit. It's something. He says, use that something to share with somebody in need. His problem is not that. His problem is his attitude. Many of us have such busy schedules that we don't even have a chance to breathe. And if we're not careful, those busy schedules are made by people without the consideration of the will of God. It, it will just happen if you do nothing. Many of us have goals and plans, I do, for our businesses. Me and Mike talked about this week about our plans for the sub-factory. Is that wrong? Absolutely not. We would be irresponsible of that which God is stewarded with if we didn't have plans for it. But we don't make our plans without considering the will of God for this place or for your life or for your families. This is an illustration that happened. It's, it's, it's funny, you know, we had this really bad storm. Me and Sean was out doing man's work. We cut us a tree down and cut it. I got me a sawmill and we cut it into lints. And, man, we, we were tired, but it was a good day. And I went in there and laid down and took me a shower and laid down in my sunroom, turned that air conditioner on, really, really cold, blowing cold air right on me. And then that storm came. 
trees started blowing sideways. And where I live, when the power goes off and it don't flicker, you're in trouble. <laughs> that power just went ploop. It's like, mm-mm. We didn't, have no, we didn't have any water poured up. You know, we just wasn't expecting it. Storm blows in. Hail comes. Power goes out. What is the first thing that you think I thought of? Where's my wife? Where's my kids? What are they doing? Are they in the midst of this storm? My Saturday plans were upset. I was, I was the one who fired, got to get, get the generators all fired up, and then I had to keep them running. So our freezers and all our fridges all over the different places didn't start melting. Wasn't what I had in plan. All these things, and you know it's true when you can't flush your toilet and can't just go to the tap and get a drink of water. It's humbling. This is how James goes about correcting his arrogance. The same way that being out of power for a few days can correct ours. How does he correct it? We must realize our fragile existence. Our existence is fragile. Verse 14, the yet, you see it? Yet. So you have set out to make all these plans to go and make all this money, yet. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. It's in this question. What is your life? The answer, your life is a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes away. They had failed to plan, these business people, for the fragility of their own life because they live, listen, first in an uncertain world. This world is uncertain. Proverbs 27.1 says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Isn't that the truth? You are one doctor's visit away, one thunderstorm, one walk across the street from a life-altering experience, and we have no knowledge of humans that it's coming. That's, what, that's how he humbles us. You live long enough, and you think you're healthy and invincible now. But in just a few short years, you will realize that life is fragile. This world is uncertain. Your life is transient. That means it is temporal. It is limited. Your life lasts for a very short time. It is brief. That's what he means by what is your life. He wants us to think about it. And then he gives us the answer. Your, your life is like your breath on a cold morning. When you breathe it out and you see that smoke, how long does it take before it goes away? Your life is like the, the mist in the morning dew that when the sun comes out, it doesn't take long before it's gone. That's what he's saying. That's your life. Listen to God's word. The psalmist says in Psalms 39.5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Why? Because he is eternal. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. I like this one. Psalms 102.3 says, For all... For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. <laughs> it only takes a very short period of time for youth to turn into old age. It sort of happens, and you don't even realize it. 
Just the next thing you look in the mirror and you got gray and white or maybe your hair starts falling out. And here's what happens. You start grunting when you sit down and you stand up and you don't even know why. And you can try not to do it so nobody hears it. But you're still doing it on the inside. Why? Because there's things in us that hurt all the time. I'm so happy. Yesterday, here has all these old people say they had sciatica. You remember that? Sciatica? I got sciatica. And you thought, bless their hearts. But I tell you what, I've had two back surgeries and now my sciatic nerve hurt. It was hurting yesterday and I was glad to get up this morning and that thing wasn't hurting. It ain't funny no more, is it? Life is fragile. We are temporal. We are wearing out. This world has fallen. It's fallen. Turn with me to one of the best illustrations that our master teacher Jesus gives us in Luke 12. Remember, James is just teaching you what the Lord taught him. Luke 12, 15. Luke 12, 15. Here's the point, a little, little tip. I think we talked about this in growth group. If you want to understand a parable, always look at the very beginning of the parable or the very end of the parable, and that will usually tell you what the meaning of the parable that he's about to give you is. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says this, And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's the point. And listen to the parable. And he told them a parable, verse 16, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones and there I will store my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, buy a place in Florida and live it up. Verse 20, what you never want God to say to you. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We live in a fallen world that encourages us that your life is a purpose, that you make the purpose. Remember, the atheist says there is no real purpose, and since that's the case, you just make your own and For some reason, we always tend to make it about us, don't we? wonder why that is. Because we live in a fallen world. This guy's saying, my bank account's full. I've invested well into my 401. Retirement's looking pretty good. He said, you forgot about one thing. You're not going to have tomorrow. And all this time... And all these years and all this stuff that you bought into was about the purpose of life. You're going to leave it for your children to squander it on their own selves. By the way, have you looked at your stocks lately? If you haven't, probably don't want to. I leave mine, I don't even open mine up right now. I just stick it in the file. Don't count on that. This fallenness, you see, 
produces in you and me and in this world a blindness and an ungratefulness. So let me just give you an illustration that we all can understand. Because it just happened to us, what, two or three weeks ago? We were all working. Part of us was working at the sub-factory. Part of us was working across the wall. All of a sudden, I hear this crash. Sound, I thought the train hit a car, you know. Went out there. Some guy had veered off the road right here in front of the sub-factory. Took out Ethan's car and Tegan, another one of our employees, and stopped in Jessica's car. Took out through two, total lost. It wasn't it Tommy, it didn't it total lost a car. And everybody's going to experience the aggravation <laughs> that I know Tommy's going through right now with insurance companies and all that mess. Everybody experiences that. But here's what I want you to understand. The difference between a non-Christian and a Christian was the response to things like that in your life. That if it hasn't happened to you, it will happen to you. And here's what I know that they gave thankful for, because I was grateful for it, that 30 minutes either way, one of our children was in between those cars, and they, we were going three days away from seeing somebody in a box in front of a church. We sat down that night with all of our children around the table, and we gave thankfulness to God, not for luck or blind faith, but for a sovereign God that protected our children that day, and we got them to tuck them in bed that night. There's a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And it's how we see those things that are going to happen in your life, whether you think they will or not. The question is, how are you going to look at it? Aren't we glad that we don't make up our own God? We need to understand. Arrogance always fights for happiness, but humility fights for joy. They're not the same. Faith perseveres, you see, by amputating one thing, this independent attitude, and by putting on humble dependence. This is important. I'm, I'm praying you get this today. We must embrace the sovereignty of God. Don't just embrace the frailty of man and buy into this weak theology that's being preached all around this town this morning. You need to embrace the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God recognizes God's will is preeminent, not mine. Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord has made everything for His purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. There's two aspects to God's will, at least. There's at least two aspects. Think about the self-confident, arrogant businessman. What should he have done to put this on? He has, should have filtered all of his plans through the revealed will of God. God gives us His will, and it is revealed. But at the same time, the arrogant businessman must have understood that God's will will happen whether you think it will or not. Because God is the one that's in charge, and His will is sovereign, and ours is not. Both aspects of God's will is critical for joy and peace in your life. Our plans and our speech comes out of our mouth and our actions should be shaped by those two aspects. There are things that God has told me and I must do and there are things that God has not told me that He does not give me the knowledge for and I must trust in Him. 
Notice verse 15. James uses the word, the Lord. He didn't say, God wills, we will do this or that. He said, if the Lord wills, that's important. He's not trying to point us to either Jesus or God. He is saying God is the controller of our futures. He is the controller of history. I was amazed just looking this up, but just put a couple of them. Just listen to them. This is the normal language as you read in the Bible, Acts 18. Would Paul go back to Ephesus? Would Paul go return to Ephesus? But on taking leave of them, the elders of the church, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So what is he saying? I'd like to come back if God wills, but if God doesn't will, guess where I'm not going to go back to? I won't be back. (laughs) I could say I'm coming, but here's the truth. God is in control, and I'm not. How about Rome? Paul really wanted to go to Rome. Romans 1.10, he says, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last seed to come into you. He says, I really want to go to Rome. But if God doesn't want me to go to Rome, I'm not going to Rome. And if he wants me to go to Rome, won't nobody stop me. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says, God determines what a preacher preaches. And what a teacher teaches. Listen to what he says. Therefore, Hebrews 6, 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God and of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse 3, all this we will do if God permits. And if God doesn't, then I won't. You see, you see that in life? This is foundational. It was foundational for, for Paul, foundational for James. And he said, well, this is foundational for your everyday life. It's embracing the sovereignty of God. There's more going on in God's will than we can ever grab a hold of. And if he showed us the future, we probably couldn't handle it. We must put on humble dependence. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, is all boasting evil? No. I'm proud to be the father of my children. Is that sinful? No. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 9. He said to me, God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we boast in is the work of God. What we do not boast in is the instruments that produce that work, us. You see? I boast in the fact, what he's saying is, I am a weak, poor excuse for an apostle. But I am that so that God's grace can rest upon me, that when God does something through me, we can say, I boast in that. Because I can't produce that. I told somebody this morning, I am the most backward, introverted person in the room, except when God's grace rests upon me. And so are you. 
Oh, we boast. But we boast in the work of our God that he does through weak instruments such as ourselves. Weak, frail, temporal, but useful when God's power sets upon us. And what we must realize is that the world is fighting against this. Listen to this. I want a passage. You don't want to miss it in this context today. 1 John 2.16 says, for all in the world, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And this world is passing away. It is temporal. It is brief. It is frail, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you see what the pride of life is contrasted against? It's the will of God. The only way you're going to fight against these three things, warring against you constantly for your life, is to know and embrace and rest in both God's revealed will and His sovereign will. All of this comes, let's remember, from the heart to the heads to the mouth to the hands. From our attitude comes our actions and so what he's saying is we must develop we must put on a humble attitude how do we do that we must realize that we are in need of God's grace to accomplish this work that you have to do and if you are here today you have work to do yes you he has given you a gift he has called you To be his child. And he has got work for you to do. But you need his grace to do it. Quit using your personality as an excuse to be disobedient. God calls that sin. We have a mandate and it is clear. But we cannot accomplish it without his grace. My desire is strong. It is stronger than it's ever been in my life. And my motivation is pure. But my body is weak and it is getting weaker. I need His grace and so do you. We are dependent on the will of God in every aspect of our life. If you knew how short your life was, how many yeses tomorrow would be no's and how many no's tomorrow would be yeses. And I say to you, you need to live your life like it's short because we don't know what tomorrow holds. That's James's point. In my... I turn my iPad around and let you see it. When I'm preaching, if I really don't want to miss something, because when I look at the clock and I, I get, oh, I've got to hurry up, you know, I'll skip something. I, I color it a different color. That means, Stephen, son, slow down. This is important. And so what I'm about to say, I got colored in blue. That's my cue for slow down, Stephen. This is important. So I'm telling you, if you, if you phased out on me, phase back in. Because I didn't always teach this well in my home, and I'm correct, the Bible has corrected me. And so I am bringing to you. Listen to what I'm saying this morning. If you don't get both of these, you're going to miss one or the other. An understanding of the fragility of life without an equal understanding of the sovereignty of God leads to paralyzing fear and anxiety in your life. Let me say that again. An understanding of the fragility of life. I get that I'm brief. I get that I'm frail. I get that I'm weak. I get that life can end at any moment. I get that I can have a wreck and get killed. I get that. Without an understanding 
that our God is absolutely sovereign and has us in the palm of his hands will only lead for you living the rest of your life in paralyzing fear and uncontrollable anxiety. Most of the struggles of mental health that are going on in this world and in our lives and our friends is as out of control. We want control, and because we won't relinquish control, we are anxious, and we are broken, and we are angry, and we attack the very people we are called to love. But relinquishing control would bring us peace. Why don't we do it? Because we must believe that there, if we are going to relinquish control, that someone is more powerful than I am. And there lies the secret of peace. Can I introduce you to him this morning? Because his name is Jesus. The Bible says in Colossians 1.15, it's not in your notes, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. There he is. There's the one that you can trust to relinquish control to. And in doing, you will not only have joy, peace, but you will have courage no matter what life brings. We must put on humility by recognizing our frailty, but we must put on our dependence on a good God and Father that has my back and has already secured my future. You see that? Oh, yes. I am 50 years old and I've already had my heart attack. I felt death inside of me. You with me? Some of you felt that. And it can either turn into paralyzing fear or you can understand my God's got my back and he's already set my date. Do what you've called to do. And my calling's no different than yours. We're all called to the same calling to do the will of God, to make him known. What would it have made a difference if that humble, if that businessman would have been humble, God were dependent and went on that business trip? So let's go back to verse 13. Let's just think about this for a second. This man puts on this humility, and there's an opportunity. Stephen, you got five kids. You've got an opportunity to go away for a year and make a lot of money. So how am I as a Christian man going to process that? You see, it can already affect it. Hold on a second. Am I really going to leave my family for a year to go make money? I, I'm liable to say that's a no-go right there. But maybe, I'm, maybe I own a merchant ship. Maybe it's not that simple. Life isn't that simple. So when I go on this trip, let's say I say, Okay, God, I think you do want me to go on this business trip. Where am I going to stay? I was talking to Pastor Chris. He's preaching this same passage today. 
He said somebody asked him to go on a business trip one time, a place he worked, and he knew this group of people was a bunch of party-drinking people. And so what he told the boss was, if I go on this trip, you're going to have to put me up in another motel. You see it? There's a difference in the way Christians make decisions. I'm going, uh, but I'm not staying in no motel linked to the casino. I'm not going to have HBO and Cinemax in my room. I'm not going to go and meet people of the opposite sex by myself. There's some non-negotiables in my life, and I carry them wherever I go. How I do the deals that I'm going to deal. There's some deals I may have to embrace. There's other deals I might walk away from that other people don't walk away. I can't do anything about that. You see, it makes a difference. When I get home, who do I give credit that I made it back home? How do I use the profit that God gave me? It affects everything. You see, the businessman may have stayed home. and He might have went. But here's the point. God factored into every decision. Down where the motel that he stays, the deals he did and they didn't do. And here's what he's going to do. I'm going to live by my biblical conviction. And I'm going to leave the ends to the God who has never done me wrong. This is the reason for verse 17 in your Bibles. Do you see it? Faith perseveres by resolving to live with biblical conviction. So whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So you can almost hear the businessman, just like you can hear your children saying, What? I didn't do anything. How many times have we heard that in our home? I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. No, you didn't do anything. Now listen, this is another one of them important moments. The sins of omission is as heinous to God and as sin as the sins of commission. Not doing anything is sin when you know what you must do. Some of us brag that we never yell at our children, but you're sitting around while your children are making your life chaotic and you're not doing anything. That is as much a sin as yelling at your children. Are you with me? Sins of omission and sins of commission are sin. God put you as the parent so that you may create peace in your home. Listen, it's a good, I couldn't have picked a better passage for Father's Day than this. Many of us are avoiding taking responsibility for the hard things in our life that we can't control. So we fill our lives up with things we can control. You with me? I can't control this aspect of my life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to not do anything there and I'm going to fill up my life with things that I can control. What does this look like in your pastor's life? Work, 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 work. That's what it looks like in my life. It may not look like that in yours. It might be lazy, 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 lazy or TV, 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 TV or phone, 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 phone. But it looks like something. And all we are doing is not doing what God has told us to do and filling our life up with things that distract us. Brothers and sisters, that's the truth. We are developing unhealthy relationships with people and electronic devices because we are refusing to not only relinquish control, but to do those things that God has told us to do. To do nothing is sin. 
when the Father has told us to act. One of the things I thought about in the, in the Bible over and over again from the very beginning of this book to the very end of this book is take care of the needy. Take care of the needy. Take care of the needy. God's Jewish people, take care of the needy. God's church, take care of the needy. How much more clear do we need in the Bible to say we're supposed to take care of those in need? Listen, to not take care of those in need is a sin of omission. It is to God to tell us to do something and sinner going, I didn't do anything. That's right. God told you to do it. God doesn't mean us today to say, does God mean me to be a bad businessman or a business person? No. He means us to do what we do with everything we have to the glory of God, trusting in God to bless us. And when he does, we're going to give him the glory for it, and we're going to use what he gives us to advance the kingdom. Isn't that what we're trusting in when we say God's going to help us renovate our space? We're saying, Lord, the only way we're going to do it is if you provide for us, and we in turn give it willfully in order to advance his kingdom. So what? I'm going to let the praise team help us supply the so what today. But I do want to ask us just some introspective questions before we sing together. Is my life reflecting wealthy independence or humble dependence? How are God's character, his promises, and his principles factoring in to the everyday decisions of your life, the everyday decisions of your business, the everyday decisions of your retirement? Or have you just embraced a view of one of those things, be it your working life or your retired life, the life that you want to have? What things or people am I avoiding simply because I feel out of control? Does your mortality motivate you or scare you? Does God's sovereignty anger you or give you rest? Are we willing to relinquish control and entrust our life and its problems to my sovereign good Father? Colossians 3.17 says this, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through Him. And so this Father's Day, let us declare together now our dependence on our sovereign good Father. Let's pray together. And so now, Lord, we have heard your word, and now it's time for us to respond, to apply what we have heard into our life. We are either going to keep control of those things we need to relinquish, or we are going to fail to act on things that God has told us to do. And so, Lord, we need your wisdom to know the difference. When to put our hands up and when to pick our hammers up. And so, Lord, we ask now. But now, Lord, we want to make our confessions public before each other. That's why we're the church, Lord. We're your church because we've got to hold each other accountable here. That's why we do community here, Lord. We, we, we need each other. And so, Lord, we stand together. We give a public 
profession. We come to the tables saying, this is our sovereign Lord. The one who lived for us. The one who died for us. The one who rose again for us. The one who will return. Whether we go to him or he comes to us, Lord, we are safe. We're going to confess that now, Lord. Will you receive our worship now? As we honor you. As the only one that we can trust. In Jesus' name, amen.